Well, dear friends, our text this morning, as we hear from the living God in his word, is Hebrews chapter 13, verses 18 to 25. Which means that after nearly two years, and by my count, 56 separate sermons on the book of Hebrews, we've come to the end of it this morning. And I pray that it's strengthened our faith. I pray that it has expanded our understanding of the gospel. And most of all, I pray that this time we've spent in Hebrews has become part of the means of our endurance in faith. Of how it is that we'll go on to run the race set before us. Because that's been the aim of the pastor all through Hebrews. And it remains the aim, even in these closing verses of chapter 13. Verses 18 to 25 are the closing of a letter. There can be little doubt about that. The various issues that are addressed in these verses, many of them are the normal customary elements of a letter's conclusion. There's a request for prayer, there's a benediction, there's a final summative exhortation, there's a note about future travel, there's final greetings, there's a concluding blessing. But it's verse 22 that makes clear how the pastor himself understood the genre of what he has written. Look there for a moment. Verse 22 says, I appeal to you, brothers and sisters, bear with my word of exhortation, for I have written to you briefly. Now, all through this series, I've referred to Hebrews as a written sermon, and I did so because of this verse. The Greek for word of exhortation is thought to have been a common designation for a synagogue homily or sermon. In fact, that exact language is used in Acts chapter 13, verse 15, when the rulers of the synagogue in Pisidian Antioch invite Paul to speak a word of encouragement, as the ESV translates it there, but it's the same Greek phrase as we have here in Hebrews. What then follows in Acts chapter 13 is Paul's sermon in the synagogue that led to the conversion of the Gentiles in that place. So, word of exhortation refers to a sermon. Only the difference here is that this sermon was written, not spoken. And in fact, it was written as part of a letter. The Greek that the pastor uses to say he had written to them, the verb for writing there, is not the, the common Greek verb that means to write. It is a much more specific word. The Greek sounds like epistello. You can even hear the term epistle in that verb. It means to inform or to instruct by a letter. This verse is the reason that Hebrews is usually referred to as an epistle. And it is. 
But it's not like the epistles of Paul or John, for example. Because from Hebrews chapter 1, verse 1, to chapter 12, verse 29, what we, what, we, what we worked through was a written word of exhortation. The sermon that the pastor had composed for a house church in Italy, most likely, a group of maybe 50, maybe as many as 100 people at most, but probably somewhat fewer than that. The simplest way to put it is that Hebrews is a sermon sent as a letter. And it is the closing of that letter that we're looking at this morning. As we do, of course, the content of the sermon can't be far from our minds. Certainly, the pastor wanted it to remain in focus. According to verse 22, which we just read, that is the whole point. I appeal to you, brothers and sisters. You could translate it, I urge you, or even better, I exhort you, since the Greek there has the same root as the word exhortation later in the same verse. I appeal to you, I urge you, I exhort you here at the end of it all, bear with my word of exhortation. Now, rhetorically, asking them to bear with his sermon was a way of speaking deferentially but the pastor's point is clear. Above all, he wanted his hearers to put up with his sermon because he wanted them to listen willingly to it, to pay careful attention to it. Only coming here as it does at the end of Hebrews, what could this mean? It wouldn't make quite as much sense rhetorically to have said this at the end if it were a spoken sermon. In a spoken sermon, I might say at the outset or somewhere near the beginning that I want you to bear with my word of exhortation, to listen to it willingly, to pay careful attention to it. But I probably wouldn't say that at the end of my sermon if I were speaking it to you. But I think the point is that the recipients of Hebrews now can bear with the pastor's word of exhortation because it's written down. That's the end of verse 22. For I have written it to you. In other words, you have it now. It's written down and I've written it for your instruction. So how would they bear with it now that it's over? Well, they'd read it again and again and again. <laughs> and they'd hear it read and they'd talk about it, and they'd learn from it, and they'd try to figure out what it means at some points, I'm sure. And all of that would be how they would go to bear with it as a church. And Lord willing, it would change them. Now, you'll be glad to know that part of the reason the pastor says they can bear with his sermon now is that it was brief. I have written to you briefly. He says, which I have found myself chuckling about all week long because brief wouldn't have been my description of the book of Hebrews, but it was the pastor's, which I think means there's a lot more he could have said. 
And maybe there's a lot more he hopes their leaders will say as they now reflect on his written sermon. Perhaps something like we have done over these two years. It seems to me the point is that Hebrews itself may be brief. It's estimated that in the Greek, it would have taken about an hour or so to read the entire sermon. But because it is brief in that way, that's why they can now bear with it over a much longer time as they study and think and pray through it in the days ahead. And I take this much time on that one verse because I think in terms of application, this is it for us as well. Don't listen to this final sermon from Hebrews and think, finally, I'm all done with Hebrews. Well, no, no doubt it is and will be good for us as a church to transition to the study of Matthew's gospel, which is where we're going next, beginning in September. But the point here is, you and I aren't done with Hebrews, brothers and sisters. We still need to bear with it because I don't think the Lord's done using Hebrews in our lives. In fact, I pray your reading of and reflection on Hebrews will forever be enriched by the time we've spent in it at Christ the King. Now, in verses 18 to 25, we've basically got two things happening. We've got the pastor asking for their prayers, and we have the pastor praying for them. The pastor's prayer for them, of course, is the famous benediction in verses 20 and 21, which is where we'll end our time this morning. But I do at least want to say something about the other parts of this text, which I'll take under the heading of the pastor asking for their prayers. In verses 18 and 19, the pastor explicitly asks the recipients of Hebrews to pray for him. Pray for us, he says in verse 18, for we are sure that we have a clear conscience desiring to act honorably in all things. And then in verse 19, he says, I urge you the more earnestly to do this, that is to pray, in order that I may be restored to you the sooner. And then later, in verses 23 to 25, we get a little more detail about the circumstances in which the pastor wrote Hebrews and why it is the hearers needed to pray. But let's start in verse 18. From last week, you'll recall the pastor had just exhorted his hearers to obey and submit to their leaders in verse 17. Then in verse 18, it seems the pastor places himself within that group. Pray for us he says, meaning pray for your leaders, including me. He doesn't go into how they should pray for all the leaders, but the point is they need to be praying for their leaders, including for their leaders' specific needs and circumstances, as we'll see. But notice first how in verse 18, the pastor appeals for their prayers on the basis of his and his fellow leaders clear conscience. For we are sure that we have a clear conscience, he says. We've seen this language of the conscience before in Hebrews. 
For example, in chapter 10, verse 22, the point is that because of the blood of Jesus and because of the fact that Jesus is now a great priest over the house of God, we can draw near with a true heart and full assurance of faith with our hearts sprinkled clean from an evil conscience. Chapter 10, verse 22 says, in verse 18 of our passage this morning, the word that's translated clear, as in we're sure we have a clear conscience, is a word that usually means good. We have a good conscience. Good as in the opposite of evil. So that reading this language of the good or clean conscience alongside the evil conscience that the pastor says Jesus cleanses us from in chapter 10, verse 22, the point then seems to be that the pastor's saying that he and the other leaders with him are writing and teaching and living as those who really have experienced the things he's written about. That they are leading out of their integrity as persons who have actually experienced that of which they speak. And according to the end of verse 18, that's reflected not only in the words they say, but in the things they do. Because the pastor says they're desiring, or you could translate it, they're determining, or they're willing, or they're choosing to act honorably in all things to conduct themselves well, you could say, to do what is pleasing to God. In other words, the pastor's authority as one of their leaders rests on his integrity as one who has faithfully interpreted and now lives by the word of God. And knowing that that's the case, what the recipients of Hebrews must do is pray for him and for all their leaders. They must pray that their leaders continue in these things, of course. The text doesn't say that explicitly, but I think it's implied. Our leaders must have a clear conscience desiring to act honorably in all things. But how crucial it is that we pray for them to continue in that, to persevere, to run the race set before them, to keep the faith. Someone once asked me if I thought the reason so many leaders in the church fall into sin of one kind or another is because their people aren't praying for them. And I know there's more to it than just that. But please do take this seriously. The devil is all too glad to ensnare as many leaders in the church as he possibly can. So you need to pray every week. Pray for your leaders. Pray for Bishop Charlie and the other leaders in Anak. Pray for me. Pray for our pastoral team. Pray for your small group leaders. Pray that we persevere, first of all. And then secondly, pray for the specific needs of which you're aware. Because that's where the pastor goes here in verse 19. I urge you the more earnestly, literally all the more, I urge you to do this, to pray, in order that I may be restored to you the sooner. Here the pastor asks them to pray for a specific circumstance, a specific need 
for him to be able to carry on his ministry effectively. He asks them to pray that he would be restored to them. And we don't know what it is that he needed exactly, because we don't know what it is that's delayed him. But the point is, they knew. That's why he doesn't even need to say it here. They know who he is. They're aware of his circumstance. And the pastor urges them the more earnestly to pray about that. And notice a couple of things. Notice how the pastor asks them to pray that he may be restored. The verb form there is passive, meaning the pastor can't accomplish this on his own. It's God who would restore him to them. And that's going to happen, the pastor tells them, in connection with their prayers, you see. In fact, notice how their prayers will make it happen sooner. Is this how you pray for your leaders? When you know something of their circumstances, and maybe you know there's something that's hindering their ability to do what they want to do, often this happens in the leadership of the church. Or maybe there's something that's causing a block to the effectiveness of their ministry. What are you supposed to do? We're supposed to pray, brothers and sisters. We're supposed to pray, knowing that God uses our prayers to bring about his purposes in the lives of our leaders and in the church. And again, we don't know why the pastor was separated from the recipients of Hebrews, and we don't have the full picture of his connection to them in the past. But it's clear he knew them, and they knew him. And for some reason, he's been held up. Some scholars think he was imprisoned, perhaps in connection with his teaching. And the reason that seems like a possibility is because of verse 23, if you want to jump down there for a moment. In verse 23, the pastor says, you should know, as in they didn't know yet, and he's now telling them, you should know that our brother Timothy has been released, with whom I shall see you, if he comes soon. Now, of course, the big question is, is this the same Timothy who we know from Paul's letters was the Apostle Paul's frequent companion? Well, we can't be certain, but most people think it is. It seems significant that he's called our brother Timothy here, because in three of his letters, Paul refers to Timothy as the brother. And in 1 Thessalonians 3, verse 2, Paul speaks of Timothy, our brother, just like the pastor does here in Hebrews 13. This has led some people to think Paul himself may have written Hebrews, but I don't think so for reasons that we discussed a very long time ago now. Rather, the point here is that the pastor was likely identified with the network of people who were close to Paul including Timothy, who evidently had been imprisoned and now has been released, it says. Maybe then the pastor had been in the same situation. Maybe he'd been imprisoned too. And maybe Timothy got out earlier and now the pastor had just been released or will be soon released. It's not clear. But in any event, the pastor seems to think his coming back to them is imminent and that Timothy will come with him assuming Timothy can make it back to where the pastor is soon. 
As we've said, the best guess is that that means they're going back to Italy and probably Rome if that's the case. Because verse 24 says, greet all your leaders and all the saints. Perhaps meaning that the members of the house church to whom the pastor wrote were to greet those leaders and believers who were part of the wider network of Christians in Rome. And then the pastor says, those who come from Italy send you greetings. Only the Greek's more ambiguous than that. It simply says, those of Italy send you greetings. But one way to read it, and it's how the ESV has taken it, and I think it's probably right, is that the pastor means that those who have come from Italy and are now with him want him to send their greetings back to the believers in Rome. <laughs> well, however we land on all of those things, the point is they have to pray because God's involved here in circumstances we don't quite have the precise picture of, but God's involved in the circumstances of their leaders and he uses his people's prayers to bring about what God intends for their leaders' lives and for the sake of the church. Which brings us then to the pastor's prayer for them in verses 20 and 21. Not only did he want them to pray for him, but he concludes his sermon letter by offering his prayer for them. And if the words of these two verses seem especially familiar, it is because this is the blessing that Anglican priests typically use during the Easter season. Let's read it. Now may the God of peace, who brought again from the dead our Lord Jesus, the great shepherd of the sheep by the blood of the eternal covenant, equip you with everything good that you may do his will, working in us that which is pleasing in his sight through Jesus Christ, to whom be glory forever and ever. Amen. It's a beautiful benediction. And there's a lot in it. We could say more than we're going to about it. But let's begin by going right to the main point. What is it the pastor is ultimately asking for here? What's at the center of his prayer for his people? Well, it's in the first part of verse 21. The pastor prays, may God equip you with everything good that you may do his will. May God equip you with everything good that you may do his will. That's the core. That's the heart of the prayer. And if you've been with us through Hebrews, it probably doesn't surprise you. Because week after week, we've returned to the pastor's primary concern in Hebrews, that his hearers do the will of God. That they do the will of God in their lives, all the way to the end, that they endure, that they live by faith. One last time, listen to Hebrews chapter 10, verse 36. For you have need of endurance, the pastor writes, so that when you have done the will of God, you may receive what is promised. Above all, what the pastor wants is that his hearers do the will of God, that they may receive salvation. And so what's his prayer for them? 
in chapter 13, verse 21, it's that God would equip them with everything good so that they can do his will. Only watch this. They still have to do it, right? Nothing's changed about that. They still have to do the will of God. They still have to live by faith. Just like all the examples we spent weeks and weeks considering in chapter 11, they still have to heed the exhortations the pastor gave them throughout Hebrews and especially in chapters 12 and 13. But what the pastor knows and reminds his hearers of at the end as he prays for them is that such perseverance is God's work. He prays that God would equip them. Now you could translate that, that God would prepare them. The pastor prays that God will prepare them to do his will. And I like the translation prepare, in fact, because this is the same verb that we find back in Hebrews chapter 10, verse 5, where the pastor puts the words of Psalm 40 on the lips of Christ as Christ was coming into the world. And Christ says in Hebrews 10, verse 5, the words of Psalm 40, verse 6, Christ says, sacrifices and offerings you have not desired, but a body you have prepared for me. And do you remember how that quote from Psalm 40 ends there in Hebrews 10? It ends with Jesus saying, then I said, behold, I have come to do your will, O God. In some sense, just as God the Father prepared for his son what was needed for his son to do his will, so also does the pastor now pray that God will prepare for us what is needed for us to do his will. Meaning what exactly? What do you and I need what do we need to do the will of God in our lives? How does God prepare us to do his will? Well, verse 21 says he equips us, he prepares us with everything good. Only that's not just some kind of catch-all generic phrase. It's literally every good thing. So that the question then is, Within the context of Hebrews, what does that refer to? What are the good things? What is every good thing that the pastor has in view here? Well, you, we do not have to guess at that. In chapter 9, verse 11 of Hebrews, we read, But when Christ appeared as a high priest of the good things that have come, then through the greater and more perfect tent, he entered once for all into the holy places, thus securing an eternal redemption. Or in Hebrews 10, verse 1, we read, For since the law has but a shadow of the good things to come, instead of the true form of these realities, it can never make perfect those who draw near. Friends, in the context of Hebrews, 
When the pastor prays for God to equip his hearers with everything good, or literally every good thing, that they may do his will, every good thing is a comprehensive description of all the good things brought about in their lives by Christ's high priestly ministry. It is the realization of what the pastor's sermon was all about. It is the heartbeat of Hebrews. It is the new covenant reality in their lives. It's all that's entailed when we say we have such a high priest seated at the right hand of the throne of the majesty in heaven, a minister in the holy places. It means we've been cleansed from sin. It means we have a heart made ready to obey. It means we have the privilege of continual access into God's presence for help in time of need. It means we have the promise of final entrance into the kingdom that cannot be shaken. Those are the good things. The good things that you and I need in order to do the will of God. Aren't they? And the point is that you cannot give yourself any of them, brothers and sisters. It's God who cleanses us from sin. It's God who changes our hearts. It's God who grants us access to his presence. It's God who makes us the sure promise of salvation. If we've learned anything from Hebrews, it is that we need all of that. If we're going to make it, if we're going to do his will and thus be saved, dear friends, God uses those good things that are all provided by Christ, having done the will of God in his life, that Christ might now equip, enable, prepare us to do his will in our lives. Which means that our doing the will of God depends ultimately on God's doing all of this in us. That's what the pastor's saying in the second part of verse 21 when he further defines God's equipping of his people to do his will as working in us that which is pleasing in his sight. Literally, working in us translates the verb for doing, doing in us. And the connection is explicit. The pastor uses the same verb here for us doing God's will as he does for God doing these good things in us. Doing in us that which is pleasing in his sight. And we don't have to wonder what it is that's pleasing in his sight. It is the acceptable worship that we're to offer God, as chapter 12, verse 28 says. It is the sacrifice of praise that we can continually offer him, as we discussed at length last week in chapter 13, verse 16. It's our whole lives, brothers and sisters. It's our lives of faith, lives that trust in God's power and promises. And the whole point is that you and I do not and cannot live this type of life on our own. God does not equip his people 
in such a way that they then no longer need him. No, he's continually doing, or the NIV translates this, accomplishing. It's interesting. The NIV translates it continually accomplishing. God's accomplishing this life in his people as they continually rely on him and draw near through their high priest. That's why the pastor says all of this is through Jesus Christ in verse 21. Because it's only through Jesus Christ, our high priest, it's only because of him that God accomplishes his will in his people. It's only because of or through what Jesus Christ has done that we can draw near to God. And so it's only through Jesus Christ that we receive the grace we need to endure in our lives. All the pastor's exhortations for endurance in Hebrews are vain unless you and I draw near and receive the grace available through Christ. Grace be with you all. The pastor says at the very end of our text in verse 25, not just because that's what you're supposed to say at the end of a New Testament epistle, but because that grace with and in our lives is everything. And the only way we get it is through our great high priest to whom the pastor concludes in the very end of verse 21, to whom be glory forever and ever which is the final note we're going to take up in Hebrews. Here, the pastor who began by affirming that God has revealed himself by his son back in Hebrews 1 verses 1 to 4, now concludes by reaffirming that that same God is the one who's brought about our great salvation through the Son, our great high priest, Jesus Christ. From beginning to end, all is God's work in Christ, and so glory is due to God and to his Son forever. What other reason could the pastor have for calling him the God of peace in verse 20? Only a God who is himself peace would do all he has done in the world and in our lives to bring about peace. The restoration of fellowship with himself through the high priestly work of Christ. As one author puts it, God shows that he both is peace and creates peace. He creates peace. By doing what verse 20 says he did. By bringing again from the dead our Lord Jesus, the great shepherd of the sheep, by the blood of the eternal covenant. It had been the plan all along, dear friends. It was, after all, the Son whom God the Father appointed the heir of all things, Hebrews 1 verse 2 told us it would be, after all, the Son 
to whom God would say in the words of Psalm 110 verse 1, sit at my right hand until I make your enemies a footstool for your feet. And it would be, after all, the Son, to whom God would say in the words of Psalm 110 verse 4, you are a priest forever after the order of Melchizedek. After making purifications for sins, Hebrews chapter 1 verse 3 says, he sat down at the right hand of the majesty on high. Yes. Because when Jesus Christ made purification for sins, it was by the blood of the eternal covenant. By his own blood, the blood of the Son of God, the blood of the single sacrifice for sins that Christ offered for all time, as chapter 10, verse 12 put it. And when he saw that, when God the Father saw that the blood of the eternal covenant had been shed, when he saw all that his son had accomplished, the pastor says, he brought him up. He brought his son up from the dead and all the way to his right hand in the heavenly places to be the great shepherd of the sheep the one who will lead his people all through their lives until that day when he'll bring us up to be with him forever. And so we say with the pastor, in conclusion, to him be glory forever and ever. Amen.